Hi, everybody. No lengthy preamble this week. Today, we bring you part two of the conversation between myself and Dr. Wang regarding upcoming changes to the neurosurgery residency application and interview process and what that entails both for institutions and for the applicants themselves. Anyone who missed last week's episode, I would strongly encourage you to go back and give it a listen before today's, obviously, as it's the first half of a conversation that we're finishing right now. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Yeah, so I was having dinner last night with a friend of mine who's an orthopedic spine surgeon up in Boca Raton, who's it's not very far from Miami. And we were just going off because he's one of the few ethical guys up there about basically <laughs> everybody. And, and I don't mean it's everybody, but it's 85% of people up in that quarter of Florida um, is doing surgery that's not necessary. I don't mean every surgery. I mean, they're frequently doing surgeries on car accident victims and making a ton of money per case. And I, by, by a ton of money, what I'm talking about is six figures for a surgery on a 22-year-old who doesn't need an operation. And mm. many of our graduates from Miami have fallen into this trap. And they're like, well, the money's just too good, Dr. Wang. Money's just too good. I mean, I only have to do a handful of surgeries a year and I can make a million bucks. And they all do it. And even if they just mean, they don't mean to do the wrong thing, they get sucked into it. And so these filters aren't just about, um, are you going to be a good surgeon or are you going to be able to get up at night to answer the phone? It's like the ethical piece too. Like if you can't, if you don't have competence, you can't be ethical because then you're like, well, I got to pay my mortgage too. So I got to find a way and my wife expects it. And my kids expect it. So they got private school. So I'm going to do this stuff and just a little bit of it. And it's not going to be too bad. And then it becomes more and more and more. And the, the lawyers are super good at this. They usually throw you a case where it's like indicated, right? Car accident case. And then you do the case and like, oh, the patient did great. And then you get a check in the mail that's something like six figures. And you're like, whoa, that's like, uh, you know, several months work in like an hour. Like, let's do more of this. And then they get sucked in. Now, there are some disagreeable people like me uh, who will weigh in on this and say, that's wrong. That's the beginning of the end of our field. And we've had Ed Benzel on to talk about stuff like this, right? Uh, Ed Benzel and Dan Resnick were very vocal about this, and they see it happening, this kind of stuff. Uh, not even as bad as Florida, just unindicated surgery for Medicare rates. But this kind of stuff is it, – it, it, when you let the people into the wrong people, the, the problems – magnify, they proliferate, they exponentially increase. And then those people influence people below them. And then you got a whole cadre of people following that are basically something on the border of criminality. And I, I'm, I, I'm not trying to use that word lightly because I know a lot of people will say, well, you, how do you stand up and say everything you do is right? And I'm not saying everything I do is right, but I try to do everything that I should to do it correctly. In other words, I try to make the decisions correctly. And so I worry about this a lot, JP. And before before we got on the recording, you were telling me about something else that's new, right? Something new about how applicants are applying and that they're, they're expressing interest uh, in programs. Yeah, well, well, that's just it. Because, you know, all, all this talk we have about the step one scores, I think, you know, kind of responding to, to what you were just saying, the step one score might better predict who can perform on a day of surgery, who wakes up at night to answer the phone, like you said, but, but these moral issues and these ethical issues, obviously a test score is not going to tell us anything about the moral character of a person, perhaps unless they were caught cheating on the test or something. But I, I think these character evaluations 
have to happen only through interaction, perhaps with recommendations from people that you trust, surgeons that you know, your peers at other institutions. But, but really, these come from interacting with a person one-on-one, uh, if, if they visit for a sub-internship for a few weeks and getting a sense of their character and who they are behind the resume. And so as we were talking at the opening of this conversation, having lost the capacity for physical visits during the pandemic, I think was a, a huge hindrance to doing accurate residency selection, not, not only to screen moral character, but like we were talking about, to get that fit, you know, to get that uh, sense of resonance with someone between the program and the applicant. And, and so now that we're returning toward a more normal application process, we're returning toward physical externships and, and visits and second looks, there's become more and more conversation about how do you pick someone to apply? How do you pick someone to visit you since we've lost some of those quantitative uh, differentiators like the step one score? And at the same time, like you said, more and more people are applying to every program in the country. So the question is, we have all of these top level applicants applying to every program in the country. We don't have a step one score. We've lost some of our capacity to distinguish people just based on the CV. So how do we pick the people that we're going to interview? How do we pick the people that can visit here for a rotation? And so this year for the 2022-23 interview season, neurosurgery will be doing something called signaling or preference signaling, which which has been done for a few years in other medical disciplines. Um, And and now we're going to bring it into neurosurgery. I actually, this might be a first for the entire neurosurgery podcast, but I did a little bit of homework and I actually looked something up before I came to talk about it on air with you. And and so this has been around since 2006. It, It came from Uh, economics graduate school, actually. Graduate students applying to economics programs first had this preference signaling capacity, um, and it gradually worked its way into other uh, graduate schools, postgraduate trainings. Like I said, it's been in different medical subspecialties like ENT, dermatology for a few years. And now this will be the first interview cycle in, in the history of neurosurgical training where it will be part of the neurosurgical match application. Um, at, at least from what I could find online uh, for this recording, applicants will be able to send eight signals, they're called, where just when the application goes in, and this isn't binding like a rank list, but they list eight programs that they are overtly interested in, and the program will be notified of that. Within neurosurgery, you are encouraged, or I think you you must send a signal to your home institution. Um uh, and you're encouraged to send them to programs where you do a sub-internship. So that counts toward your total eight uh, signals. And anyone listening, if I'm wrong about this, please write in to let us know. And we'll correct it on air. I'm obviously not in the SNS. I'm not a program director. So I, I'm not, you know, I don't have access to all the latest data with this. But from what I could find online available to the public, neurosurgical applicants get eight signals. They're encouraged to use one for their home program. They're encouraged to send one to any place they rotate on an externship, and this will be an overt signal to programs, this applicant is interested in you. And that is supposed to serve as a way for a program to earmark those people and kind of, you know, say if if we have 40 spots for people to come interview and we have 100 applicants, well, these people are all equivalent in terms of their letters of recommendation, where they're coming from medical school, et cetera, et cetera, same number of publications, 
oh, but these 40 signal that they're actually interested in our program and might come here. Whereas these 60, they're applying, maybe they're applying to every program in the country, but they would never come here. So why bother talking to them, right? So you... You hadn't heard of this, Doctor Wang, before. I we had got not heard, now, now, I, now you're telling me, and I'm laughing as I'm thinking through it in my head. And I please, with all due respect to the people in the SNS, and I, I think I'm a member of the SNS. Yeah, I think I am. Um, <laughs> so who, so who came up with this, and who allowed this to happen? My God. Okay, so I can tell you what's going to happen right now. This is so obvious to me because you got to understand the, and people who listen to our podcast should be able to guess what I'm thinking right now. You're starting to understand the neurosurgery mind. Okay, what's going to happen is every program is going to compete, basically, to find to 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 basically have as many people as possible. Put them in their eight. I assume it's not one through eight; it's just eight, right? It's it's ranked evenly, right? So so right. the BNI is going to be like, whoa, we have the highest percentage of people in the country that. <laughs> that are interested in the BNI and then the poor programs. Like, I don't want to pick on any program. I'm just going to say my good friends, let's say Louisville, right? Cause nobody, you don't think about Louisville as the first thing, unless you're from there. They're like, Oh my God, you know, like, what are we going to like, like, how come we don't have enough people interested? And it's going to be this battle for another quantification of who's the best program in the country. I mean, this is all I see coming out of this. I don't think this is going to inform anything. I mean, the programs that have, they know who's interested in you, right? The programs that have the, the weight to, to basically really pick out of their rank list and the, and the ones that don't have as much of that, they know who they are. Like, I, this is what I sense is going to happen, JP. Maybe am I too cynical? Am I just far too cynical now for, for the young people? Well, this year saw um, publication in our journals of the most highly impactful Twitter users in neurosurgery. So I think we, we can... We can anticipate the host of papers next year on which programs got the most signals and how did applicants feel about having the signal process and what correlated with what regarding it. So we can anticipate all those papers. Um, I, I, I do think it's interesting that this has now become a formalized, intrinsic part of the application process, because I know for a fact that when I was trying to lock down my sub eyes, which... Thankfully, it, it didn't take much work because you called people for me, honestly. But when I was trying to get sub eyes scheduled when I wanted them, and then when I was applying for interview spots and I knew the places I wanted to interview, you know what I did? I wrote emails. I emailed yeah. the chair. I emailed the program director. I emailed residents at an appropriate level. I, anyone who I could find contact with, I emailed them myself. And I said, I'm serious about your program. I really want to come visit. I've applied, please consider me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the fact that I sent that email myself and chose to do it was information in and of itself besides the fact that I was interested. And I know that for the past few years, on the other side of things, as a resident reviewing applications at Rush, when someone emailed us and said, I am interested in your program, please consider me, I'm serious about Rush for my residency, not just knowing that they were interested, but knowing that they chose to take the time to send the email, that's, a, that's like second level information about the person and their intentions. So now, if you have every applicant in the country automatically, formally expressing interest in a program, sure, they, they express interest, but, but maybe you think to yourself, well, did they only list a signal for me because they had to list eight and I'm number seven and they just needed to fill out a form? 
you don't know that they chose to take action to express that interest in you. So, so again, I feel like we're losing some information while even at the same time, it seems that we're gaining it, or at least there's yeah. potential for that. I love the analysis and we're, I mean, we're just getting started on this, but we, we really want, I, I really want to have Rick Komatar back on because he's just so brutally honest, but I, I have to resist that temptation to get his comments on this, but I can already start to think about, okay, the type of applicant that lists eight programs, but then does their sub ice elsewhere, or the ones that do their sub eyes and the second looks and list the programs, what kind of applicant is that? Like there's going to be, it's going to stratify. And because there's no cost to do this, right? There's no effort cost or anything else. How does that weigh into a second look, which costs you an air ticket versus a sub eye, yeah. which costs you, you can only, you can only do two sub eyes now, right? Or one is what's the rule now? I think it's back to two. I'm honestly not sure if it's changing this year even. Yeah, like I don't even know why that's restricted. I don't. This is such an important decision. I tell people you should do five sub eyes or do more sub eyes. Like get better at this, understand better your decision making rather than having to pick. And everybody's picking the same places, right? The people who think they're real strong all go to the same six or seven programs, and the people who think they're weak try to stay close to home or get like a hedge program. Like it's really kind of sad to watch this play out. I, I mean, I feel like the more it gets doctored and massaged and manipulated and regulated the worst this whole process is going to be. And, and, and the simplest thing is the metric of, okay, who had the most likes? Because I'm going to call them likes. <laughs> most signals of, of, in the country, right? That's going to be the basic barometer that people are going to start to chase after. Yeah, well, I will say this. So imagine you're a place like Barrow and you get these signals. Who cares, right? I, I can't imagine that they're going to take these signals seriously. Um, they, they are who they are. They know that how many people are interested in them. I can imagine, however, if you're a smaller program, a less prestigious program who does good work, or maybe there's cultural differences where you're at a very clinically heavy program and there's someone who, for whatever reason, is an MD, PhD, who's done a bunch of lab work, but really genuinely wants to be at that clinically heavy program, and they fear they may never be taken seriously as an applicant, then they have this signal of interest and the program can say, well, this person's very academic. I normally wouldn't think that they would come to this clinically driven program, but it seems like they really are interested. Maybe they're worth hearing out. Maybe I'll let them come in and, and we'll give them an interview spot and see if they mean it. I can see that being part of the rationale or a potential benefit. Again, for me though, why wouldn't that person just send an email? And if it's that important to them and they really do want to get an interview at that place and they have the wherewithal to recognize that Maybe their background doesn't really fit with what the program is known for. Acknowledge that and then take the time to write an email and say, you know, I'm a very academic applicant. I understand that. But for reasons X, Y, and Z, I am seriously interested in your program. I, I sure hope you'll consider me for a visit. Why, why wouldn't they just send that email, right? Yeah. And for the applicant, I think it does two things that are negative. One is it gives them an artificial sense of control over the process, which they still don't have. And then the second thing is, is it then the John Pauls and the, the JPs in the world that send the emails, is that person a gunner? Is that person aggro? Because you should just rely on the signal process to, to play this out. I mean, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I, I probably shouldn't poo-poo it so hard. I'd probably piss off a bunch of SNS leadership. But I, I, I you know, look, what happened to just freaking showing up? Like, I get it. Like, it costs some money to interview. <laughs> Just come and see the place. Like, you know, I don't need to sign. It reminds me of Tinder. 
It's like, oh, I'm going to send a signal to another person I've never met and try to bait them into like wanting to swipe right for me. And then maybe I'm going to get, you know, an easy lay or something like that. It's like, it's so repulsive to me. It's like, right. The good one is right. Good. Yeah. I write, I think right means you like them or you, whatever. But I mean, what happened to just getting up the courage to walk across the bar and going to talk to somebody if they don't like you they can tell you and then at least it costs you something to do that right so you have to pick and choose how often you want to do that in your life but i i, I get it it's a different generation i'm a gen xer i'm ancient now i'm going to retire soon probably but but let's let's help our younger people then okay let's spend a, a couple minutes doing that because just beating it down doesn't really help them right so now you are a P, uh, I'm sorry, an MS2 or MS1. You're thinking about this process and you're like, okay, how do I make myself attractive, right? So you got the signal, you got the two sub eye slots, you know, what, what do you think that people are looking for to make you a great candidate? What's left? There's no board scores. Okay. You said take step two early. Okay. If you think you're going to ace step two, that's a, that's not a bad strategy. Um, what do you think, JP? What what's available? What's in your armamentarium for display, uh, for for the right signal, meaning that you're going to be a great neurosurgery trainee? Yeah, and I mean, I, I will answer this question from the resident perspective, and then equally, I think we'll have you answer it from the attending perspective. And as as we've said before on on this show, everything's different at every single program in the country. But I think the general pattern is that attendings pick the pick the residents, usually the, the senior leadership chair and program director will pick the residents that and their rank list and residents tend to have veto power, right? So that's the general pattern. And, and so I can speak from my perspective as, as a resident and what makes us like applicants more or less and want them more or less and lean towards that's a good person versus lean towards that's a veto. And I will briefly say that whoever you piss off with these opinions and you know, who knows what's going to happen with this signaling process. It's brand new to us. But I, I do know from experience, both for myself and you, that whatever does come out of this, we're going to talk about it afterwards. And if we're wrong, we will eat our words on air. Um, you had never heard of this process before an hour ago when I told you about it as we were starting to record. And this is literally off the cuff, your, you know, off the top of your head reaction to hearing about this new idea. So this time next year, when we see the results of it and we see how it actually panned out, we'll talk about it again. And I know that if it was a great benefit to our field and uh, everybody loved it and it was super helpful, we'll own that and, and we'll, we'll say just that to our listeners in a year's time. But returning to your question about what can people do to distinguish themselves, I, I think that I've already made myself somewhat clear. Nothing, you know, nothing is as powerful as a simple hello. Right. Or like you said, walking across the room and, and talking to somebody, a handshake. I think that in this increasingly virtual world and in this increasingly impersonal process in a field that is inherently interpersonal, I think that the organic communications, the organic interactions, the visits, the real quality time spent interacting with people becomes more and more valuable because we're getting this deluge of fake, digital, artificial, virtual information about people and this del you know, it, it's like the more and more we are connected, the more we're separated, people often say about the digital age, we can email now we can text message, we can zoom, we can Skype. All of this has that element of artificiality, 
All of this has, like you said, the people who might be off screen feeding them answers or questions. You never, you never know, right? Like the person who wears a jacket and tie and then sandals and shorts underneath their desk while they're on a Skype interview. So I think, and I'm not encouraging anyone to break any rules. I don't even know what the rules are. And I'm not going to tell you to, to circumvent things, you know, speaking publicly as someone who's just a resident myself, but to whatever capacity you can and are allowed to truly interact with the programs you're interested in or the programs you think you might be interested in and you want the information you set yourself, the best way to learn about a program and for a program to learn about you is directly, organically, and honestly in person whenever possible. Go visit, shake hands, talk to people, walk around, see the building, see the town. That's how you know what you want. And that's how they know if they want you. So, so I, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here because this is the SNS that's doing this, I think, right? All of this. Uh, okay. So the things that are um, weighed more heavily in the absence of other matrix factors, that being the board scores and, um, and things of that sort. So, okay, research. So this is going to drive more and more medical students. Maybe this is what the SNS has planned into people trying to do a year of research in somebody's lab or getting a Howard Hughes Medical Institute um, um, fellowship or whatever that is for medical students nowadays has probably changed over the years. And so your number of publications, so everybody's going to go running to the academic centers to try to get more juice to put in their CVs. That's the first one. Number two is sub-I performance. I think that now more than ever, that's going to really be be observed uh, with some greater scrutiny as if there wasn't enough scrutiny already, right? That's going to be huge, that performance level of that month on rotation. Number three, recommendation letters. Now is when it really matters, right? Like hmm. what are your rec letters going to say? Who's writing them? Um, what's in them? Um, you know, that those pieces are really, really going to matter. So it's so funny to me. It's almost like, oh, I'm sorry. The last one was the outside factors that are, are hard to influence in short time periods. So for example, uh, people are going to weigh even more. Did you play college sports? They're going to be like, right. do you have a, do you have a master's, a PhD? Like these, oh, you know, did you spend a year in Tanzania? This kind of stuff is going to become bigger and bigger and bigger in the minds of the, the folks making the decisions. Um, and I think in some ways it almost drives the disparities greater. So who has the money to go to Tanzania for a year and volunteer, right? Well, those right. are the people who are well-to-do and come from nice families and all that. That's just a fact. There's no way around this. I'm not saying that's the only people that do it. I'm saying it weighs towards those people. Who are the people who can do a year of research and not start trying to get their, on with their life, right? They're probably not the blue-collar people. Right. Who are the people that are going to do better on a on a sub eye? Well, they're the people who can get a nice place and a car and dress appropriately with the expensive clothes and the proper clothes and, you know, have been properly trained in manners. And you know, it becomes even more, I think, and, I, and I'm going to be very cynical on this, disparate. It's going to mm. weigh even he more heavily against underrepresented minorities. You know, I'm not saying that there aren't already action programs already in play to help them. I'm saying that those people are going to be at a disadvantage on all these realms. And so that's that's where I think this is headed. I, I, I'm very cynical about this because I feel like the more people try to engineer um, some sort of high minded ideal, I feel like it's it's like a comedy of errors. I, yeah, think I mean, you are right to point out that every time we eliminate one way for students to differentiate, the, let me rephrase that. When we eliminate ways to 
observe differences between students, even if the intention is to remove the unfair differentiators, you're also removing the opportunity for a less privileged applicant to distinguish themselves positively, right? So someone who right. didn't have the resources or the background to do these extraordinary things in their lives, like mission trips or years of laboratory work or what have you, you're removing the opportunity for that student to blow step one out of the water and show someone when given the opportunity in life to perform a task, this is what I'm capable of doing. Just let me, give me the chance, right? And, and I do want to say, and because I hadn't thought of this, but you're very right and you're very prescient, I think, and the importance of research now and number of publications, because as we lose the step one and the grades, we turn to any kind of easily quantified number that we can just look at. And I think there is an increasing emphasis on number of publications for residents, for junior attendings, seeking academic track positions, and obviously also for people coming out of medical school and applying to residency, it's an easy number to rank people by. So I do want to issue this warning and word of caution to everybody in medical school. Please, please, please do not artificially inflate your number of publications. Um, I know that, you know, just speaking bluntly, when I finished medical school, I had an impressive number of publications and I was obsessively scrupulous about making sure that everything that my name was on I contributed significantly toward, I understood the project, I could talk about it on my interviews. It was something I had really, I really deserved to have my name on. And I was proud of my number of publications, knowing that I had really done all that work. And we all hear about places where if you're in a group, everybody's name goes on everything, or somebody's trying to help you out and inflate your numbers, so they put your name on stuff. To, to me, that's like cheating on step one to get a higher number. You're cheating on your publications to get a higher number there, and it's unscrupulous and it's dishonest. And I will tell you that, I don't know if I've ever even told you this, Dr. Wang, but when I interviewed, I went around with my CV and I was, you know, my, my pride about, oh, all these papers that I had done and everything. And I took it as a mark of respect that no one questioned me about that number being high because I presented myself as an honest, hardworking person, and they could tell I did this work. I was proud of it. I was comfortable talking about it. There was one program in the country where I interviewed that expressed doubt about my number of papers. And they, they asked me like, hey, did you, did you really write these? Are these really all yours? And that was so offensive to me. That is the only place I interviewed that I didn't rank. I'm not going to name them, obviously, but just the, the word of caution is be that honest with your work that if it's questioned, it offends you be that scrupulous about the things you put on your CV and represent as a product of your mind and your effort, especially now that the temptation is ever greater to inflate that number more and more. Well, you know, JP, I, I, I remember you working very hard to get those publications. So I will back that up that you absolutely did the work and you deserve the credit, the academic street cred that you have with those publications. So I'm glad you, you mentioned that and take that stance. I do want to sit, I'm going to give the concrete example. Some people think I'm just riffing on this. Okay. There was an applicant not too long ago who, um, was a, was a, was a pilot, or I should say, had a pilot's license. And all the interview discussions were all about that. And you know how it is in, in, in applications. It's like, oh, that's the pilot, right? Right. You know, the pilot, exactly. Yeah. That's an example. Like, 
I mean, I don't know many people that when they're in medical school have the wherewithal to ask their parents to spend the money to rent planes and instructors, because that's what that is. There's no way to just be a pilot. You have to get the, there's a process, right? That process is time consuming and expensive. And it's only done by a select cadre of humans, unless you're going to be a professional pilot, right? You're going to work in the Air Force or the Navy or, or go to go spend the money for tuition so you can fly a jet for, for Southwest Airlines, right? That's different. But for people who fly recreationally, and I have nothing against it, that's fine. But to have that as your sort of defining element of your CV is the definition of privilege. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, people shouldn't fly. What I'm saying is that that's not going to the lab and writing papers. And you know what I mean? There are elements of this that I feel like um, we are unconsciously, these people in SNS, unraveling this stuff. And I think, look, anybody can study hard if they're smart enough and do well on the boards. Not everybody can get their parents to pay them to pay for lessons. And it's thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of dollars to do this. So you can be a private pilot before you finish medical school. Um, and and I'm, I have nothing against this applicant. I, so if that person's listening, please don't take it that way. Please understand that we understand their disparities. But I really worry about these high-minded ideals that people are placing as barriers to people who are not going to have the advantages. And, and, you know, look, I'll be criticized on the back end for saying this, but I'm going to stand hard by it. I think that is a, that is a practice that defines your career, your personal life, and certainly your time on the podcast, hard opinions and standing by them. Well, um, let me finish with a positive message though. So I started yeah. business school, right? And uh, we've had a couple of people who did business school on the podcast already. And, and the experience is really fascinating. And, and I'd love to talk about it in detail for anybody thinking about it. Praveen Mumanini, shout out to him, Dan Shuba. They all helped me with this process. I am singularly, um, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, less than overwhelmed by the work ethic, uh, dedication and talent of folks that are going down that route compared to neurosurgeons. And I'm I'm not talking about everybody. I'm saying like, you know, MBA is kind of a big deal, right? If you tell people I have an MBA, they're like, wow, that's pretty good. Right. But I mean, honestly, like compared to what we do, I mean, it's pretty trivial. I hope your professors are listening. That was that? Well, I, though, I'm okay with that. I'm a professor. I'm a tenure professor myself, so they can think whatever they want. But And I'm not saying that MBAs aren't important. I'm not saying they're not valuable. I'm not saying I'm not learning anything. I'm not saying that MBA graduates are not smart. What I'm saying is that the process by which this happens is to, to accrue that degree isn't anything like what we do, which right. is so much harder and demanding and exacting. And, and I think that's shout out to everybody doing this about how amazing it is and why we do get treated a different way because it is really, really special and it is really, really hard and it is really, really worth it. Yeah. And, and you know what? I think that's appropriate. It, it's so easy when, when we say things like that, we are so often criticized and, and the, the go-to reaction and the remark is, oh, you think your job is so much harder than mine. You think your job is so much more important than mine. You think your training is so much harder than mine. And and usually the answer, honestly, is, yeah, wouldn't you want the training to make a neurosurgeon to be harder than the training to make a small business owner? 
obviously small businesses are important important we all need to buy goods at the store we all need to have professionals and provide services we need plumbers we need carpenters but if you're if you're going to a store to buy a ream of paper for your copier wouldn't you expect that the training for that person to run that small business is not as grueling demanding and exacting as the training for someone to take a brain tumor out i would want that as someone who buys paper at the store and as someone who has a family member that might have a brain tumor. So I, I think that it should be acknowledged that the training for different fields should be harder and obviously is harder. So I think that's very well said and an important positive note to leave this on. Right. So we're going to have to have some of these SNS folks on or program directors to comment more on this. I'm actually interested to see what happens. So JP, it's so great to be on with you again after a, a little bit of a, a, a you know, a, a reprieve from all of our recordings. And I do want to thank our listeners out there. Please send us the emails. We love reading your emails. They're, they really are putting us back in touch with the neurosurgery community. Yes, Dr. Wang, I, I, I really genuinely agree. It's great to be back on the air with you. It's, it's great to have one of these just classic back and forth conversations with you. I really look forward to hearing from our listeners at any stage of the game. If you're in medical school, worried about this new interview process, if you're a resident who sees things differently, if you're one of these uh, senior leaders who helped define the policy, uh, please give us your thoughts. Please give us feedback on our rowdy opinions. And as I assume that since this was all kind of off the cuff and I don't have access to the real goings on and, and workings behind the scene. If I'm factually wrong or we're factually wrong about any part of this process, please write us and let us know. And I will happily correct that on air so that we're putting accurate information out there. Otherwise, uh, look forward to upcoming episodes where we interview people who are part of this process and have someone come on and tell us why we're all wrong about everything. And this is the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, so we'll look forward to that. Thank you all for listening through this. Dr. Wang, great to be back. Thanks for doing this today. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.